right, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome to The Loyalist Connections. Established 1783. All right, Sean, let's do this. So you had a pretty busy weekend. Man, you wouldn't believe it. First time as an adult driving to Yarmouth with the family. How was the drive? It was long and noisy, and I'm happy it's done. <laughs> I was happy to get to the destination. I could do that drive in my sleep, man. Oh, my goodness. I almost fell asleep. <laughs> it's so funny because you can go, you know, the North Shore, the South Shore, right? I always find it a different experience. So, you know, going from the North Shore takes a little bit longer. So sure, it's always quick and dirty, as I say, right? Mm-hmm. It takes me three hours like in my sleep, literally, right? So I've done that route hundreds of times, man. So I'm um, glad you got, got a chance to go down there, experience Yarmouth. Absolutely. But you also had uh, the opportunity to go to Greenville as well, too. I did. You know, it was, uh, like I said, first trip for uh, myself as an adult. Uh, the purpose was to, you know, see the province, and we got an opportunity to see half the province did tour it around and then we you know we spent the night in the hotels a new hotel close to the the native reserves and then it was time to, to head back and you took the south shore right took the south shore so north shore going down south shore going home and so on that way you know about an hour outside of yarmouth um is the first episode that we're gonna do today and kind of kick off this historical journey for us right the uh the black loyalist arrival in That's nova right. scotia and they settled- 1783 what a what a critical moment in the black nova scotia history well canadian history canadian history right we can't forget that cannot and so about an hour away from yarmouth like i said you ran into birchtown and then you would have passed shelburne on that exit as well too absolutely uh, I'm thinking there's so much more to discover about this era during the arrival of uh, the Black Loyalists. You're right. So that's why we're going to ask our special guests to tell us more. So we're pleased to uh, introduce Graham Nickerson. We're so pleased to have you here today. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, I mean, I'm pretty thrilled, too, to see that uh, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick are celebrating Emancipation Day. It's about time. So I'm ha- I'm like really to feel like you're like society is actually starting to change and accept who we are as, as being part of it. And, uh, you know, when they, when they looked at August and went, Hmm, nothing important happened in August. Let's, let's just make it a bank holiday. Like, you know, now people are starting to see like, okay, well, yeah. Like, why didn't we, why didn't we call it emancipation day right off the bat? That's a really good point. So I guess that's a good place to start and say happy early Emancipation Day. Yeah, happy early Emancipation Day. So, Graham, we are talking about, and I guess the the title of this podcast is Loyalist Connections. And we've had numerous conversations over the last couple of weeks. But what I wanted to ask you was, can you tell us how you're connected to Birchtown, Shelburne? Yeah. um, So my, I'm the descendant of two, at least two black loyalists who are in the book of Negroes. So Henry Gwynn and Titus Milner. And so both of those guys ended up in Shelburne in 1783. 
And so um, through them, I'm, I'm tied into a network of black families. And so my grandfather was, um, or my great grandfather on my father's side, which is a black side of my family. He was a number of, uh, a member of the number two construction battalion. Um, and his name was, Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. William Daring. So that's a, that's a topic that ties me into not only Shelburne blacks, but blacks from all over the region. And then my grandfather mm-hmm. was Merle Bruce, who was a pretty well-known um, tap dancer in the in the early 20th century. He toured around with Hank Snow, for for example, uh, was on Wolf Carter's uh, Jubilee, or sorry, uh, Don Messer's Jubilee and Wolf Carter. Um, so his son, my father, Sylvester Bruce, was one of probably Shelburne County's best athletes. And, uh, that's how I know, uh, Chuck. So when I met Chuck the first time, Chuck Smith, he sort of looked me up and down and didn't really make, pay much attention. And then when, <laughs> when I told him that I was Sylvester Bruce's son, he almost kissed me. I think, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I've heard that Bruce name before. Yeah. yeah. So Sylvester and then his brother, my uncle Huey Bruce was that's at Acadia right. university when Chuck went there. So Graham. You know, what can you tell us about a genealogist perspective versus the historian perspective? Yeah, so genealogists and say um, amateur historians, or I will call them public historians, of people who sort of put some things together for, for uh, historical association or whatever, where they're looking at material, where a genealogist or somebody who's not trained in history, they take... Uh, what's called, I'm going to throw a historical word in there, teleological approach, which is to sort of say, you look at a person and you justify their existence by what they achieved. So you almost, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where you're, where everybody's looking for a famous ancestor, right? And what a historian does is looks at that person and looks at the time that they live in tries to come up with an idea of how that person thought at that time and what was going on to shape the way that they saw the world and themselves and how they identified themselves. So a good example would be how people complain that um, renaming streets or taking down statues is erasing history. Well, statues are not history. Statues are what we call commemoration. And so a statue represents actually the people who erected the statue and what they thought and how they looked at the past. It doesn't represent the past. It represents a view of the past that's crafted to present a certain narrative. So a historian would say, you know, the good, the bad, the indifferent, this is what happened. And this is how it relates to other things that happened. They paint that whole. Yeah, yeah. And it's it tends to be like, if, if you can get into history and you come out of it with an uplifting story, you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> there is struggle along the way, right? That, that, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, there's not really a whole lot of good in the good old days. <laughs> right. So one of the, the things that we talked about is like the black loyalists, how they arrived in Shelburne. Uh, and, and how they were treated by, you know, the whites prior to their arrival in Shelburne. What, what do you know about, like, that history? 
So that's a, it's a good question. And it's a complicated one because when mm-hmm. we say the black loyalists, right mm-hmm. there, there is really no, the black loyalists. There are, you're talking about from Maine all the way down to Florida, all of the black people who join the British and so to sort of say like they're all one type of people is it's just culturally they're not um, right. uh, society wise they're not religiously they're not um, linguistically they're not so mm-hmm. it's in different places and different times things happen differently I mean mm-hmm. generally the blacks are trying to take advantage of whatever avenue is open to them for freedom. If that's right. joining the British, otherwise mm-hmm. if it's joining uh, the Continentals or the Patriots, that's where they mm-hmm. went. Um, and then depending, so one of the real drivers in how blacks and whites got along is in areas where, uh, say, um, labor shortages due to the war. So in areas where the labor is short, blacks have some advantages. They have some power, mm-hmm. and so they can they can really sort of drive the relationship. So that would be places like New York City and Charleston and Augusta, Georgia, right, right, and right. Um, even in St. Augustine, Florida. But then in other places, once you get away from the seacoast where, where the British are with all the, the need for um, boatmen and dock workers and farmers and all of those sort of things, then they're, it's mostly enslaved and they're, they're basically being abused by both sides of the conflict and, and mm-hmm. attempting to make the most of a pretty miserable situation. So when we think of the black lawyers and we try and circle around Shelburne, most of the early arrivals, they're coming from New York and they're either Virginia early um, people who joined like Lord Dunmore and the Ethiopian uh-huh, regiment uh-huh. Okay. or yeah. black pioneers or, or there are people who, who went to New York via the Navy or, or picked up by the army. So they're f- relatively, uh, there's a fair number of them that are, that are doing fairly well. And mm-hmm. then what do you mean? Like they were doing fairly well prior to their, prior arrival? to their arrival. And even, um, when they show up, I, th- I think we are looking at a, the, their look into the future was quite promising. Like right. everything right. was up in the air Interesting. and it's only yeah. that. See, that's the issue with when you look at the black loyalists n- now, you know, the story and you, you just project back, Oh, well, they must've been powerless and, and mishandled mm-hmm. the entire way back through the time. That's not the case. We had a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of people who are leaders and accomplish great things. And so it's really, there are some really, really interesting stories and I'm not sure if we're going to get into them now, or if you want to pick this up at some other time, but there are guys like uh, Colonel Ty, who's the leader of the black brigade who raids through New Jersey and is um, by many historians, one of the most effective military leaders on the British side for the war. Wow. So that, and he's Stephen Bluke's predecessor. So when he gets, uh-huh. Colonel Ty gets killed and Stephen uh-huh. Bluke comes in and starts to lead the black brigade and the black pioneers, but he's not nearly as gifted a military leader 
as wow. as Colonel Ty. Yeah, Stephen Blue's name came up uh, a fair amount. He had a pretty <laughs> interesting. I think I think we were calling him Block earlier. I'm not. I yeah. call him Blue, but I <laughs> Blue. I've, yeah. I've only read read it, and uh, so he, yeah. it, and honestly, he's from Barbados, so he may have had his own. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it. so it could have been pronounced. Yeah. So Stephen yeah. Bluke was from Barbados. Plenty more of that. So, Plenty more of those connections out there. When you're talking loyalist yeah, connections, exactly. it, it's crazy. The, it's the web. Yeah, with the Caribbean yeah. islands. Yeah, for sure. So, one question I, Larissa and I had during these discussions were about those three thousand free blacks that were in that the Book of Negroes. Um, I'm just wondering if we can get a sense of how many were indentured servants soldiers um, we know that there was individuals that were involved in construction engineering uh, black pioneers as well too um, can you get a sense of how many were uh, like if if we were to break those down by those categories yeah so it's again it's sort of cloudy depending on what sources you look at and when you tally up your own numbers and you'll come up with different numbers so the 3,000, I believe there are, um, there are about a, I think a thousand, 1,500 who are, who are like free, right? And then the others are in this sort of continuum of indenturedness or um, full out enslavement. And so it, it, that whole, stratum of how that society is laid out it breaks down pretty quickly even upon leaving new york city because the british are are um chronically short of ships and so if the black person or people can indenture themselves to a white person to get paid to get on another boat that's not an official british transport that's what they're doing and that's so crazy. I never even thought about that. they get so you, you don't see like it's you have to look at all of sort of the, the loyalist destinations to get an idea of how this all played out, because the little pieces of the puzzle exist in all of the all of the stories. And mm-hmm. so what happens in places like um, Jamaica is almost everybody's enslaved. There's like 60,000 blacks who are who are essentially kidnapped from the Southern States and transported to Jamaica. And they're all enslaved. Um, whereas in, in Jamaica, Florida, there are lots of people who flee South into Florida who are free, but then are trapped. Yes. And so they, right. it, they make whatever arrangements they can to get out of Florida because Britain's surrendering it to Spain and there's, and mm-hmm. it's uncertain what's going to happen. So the same sort of situation is happening in New York City with the blacks who are going to um, Nova Scotia. So there are, I think, like I said, I think it's around 3,000 people in the Book of Negroes who are um, in either free or in some mm-hmm. other arrangement of, of limited or full-out bondage. But then there are like another 1,000 or so, uh, 1,500 um, servants. I believe that are um, that are, that show up in other documents that aren't necessarily in the Book of Negroes. I think we should clarify what an indentured servant is. 
to give some context around that, um, some people will say, well, you know, that's they're a servant. <laughs> they're getting well, paid. They're getting paid. <laughs> and I think there's this misconception that, you know, that somehow being an indentured servant actually kind of uh, alleviated some of the stress for yeah. some of these free blacks. Um, could you just clarify what an indentured servant is, Graham? Sure, sure. And, and this whole issue of how people are called or, or what they're termed is a big a big issue in black loyalist history because they show up as servants almost everywhere they're described as servants even if they're there's 100% proof that they're they're enslaved they're they're described as servants and that is to deal with i think it's article 7 in the treaty of paris which is a, basically that all of these black people were supposed to be returned to their american uh, enslavers there at you the go. end of the war yes so the British didn't call anybody a slave because they could say, well, we didn't take any slaves. There's a bunch of servants here mm -hmm. that right. left, but no slaves. So a slave is a, a chattel. Chattel slavery is like you are a thing. You mm -hmm. are like a, like a cattle, like cattle or a horse or a wagon. You are essentially a thing. You have no rights. You are covered entirely under property rights, right property law not and not civil law an indentured servant is basically they are trading their labor and a level of freedom for a period of time to to a, a the other person who's holding the bond and they they would pay them some give them housing and feed them and so it's a intended to be a temporary situation right, right? not like enslavement which is chattel slavery at that time is lifelong and hereditary uh -huh. so there's a huge difference and so anyone who's listening to this and who has in their mind oh they're almost the same thing they're not that's it's completely different and there's very there's nothing that's just like slavery except slavery right yeah <laughs> <laughs> that sums it up pretty well uh sean mentioned you know the black pioneers uh the Black pioneers. I think they were like the military, like military group. They were fighters, were they? Or so black. That's so. Almost, this is you're getting a a sense of this black loyalist history. Again, this is it's this is somewhat of a foggy area. Mm -hmm. There is the black pioneers that were raised at the very beginning of the conflict from North Carolina, and that's where Thomas Peters and uh, I think Murphy Steele. There's a couple of black loyalists who who are pr pretty prominent later on who are, are signed up as black pioneers. And so they're mainly non-combatants, but then there are other groups, pioneer groups. So there's always sort of this idea of like the black pioneers, but the black pioneers is the one that that's has Thomas Peters in it. And there's, they're broken up and spread out like they are, they are a company but they're spread out over the other British companies or regiments. And they're, they're one or two of them per, per uh, company who, who um, basically are responsible for combat en engineering. Right. But then there are sort of these ad hoc pioneer companies that are raised whenever the British need black labor. Right. So there's another black, uh, there's an, another Carolina pioneer group that gets raised during the British uh, invasion of the South. And then there are, there's evidence of other ad hoc sort of 
we need 500 black people to go and build that build fortifications and so they'll raise an, an ad hoc pioneer company and so that's why you end up with so if you just look at the word pioneers and yeah. think, oh, those are our black pioneers. Yeah. Well, they are black pioneers, but they may not be the black pioneers. Right. Right. So like they were comprised of like skilled individuals, like whether it be combat, whether it be construction, whether it be, you know, combat engineering, like these people were skilled in one capacity or another. Skilled labor. Yes. Is still skilled labor. Like mm-hmm. you just weren't getting can, paid for it. Yeah. Right. The, yeah. They just weren't getting paid for it. And let's be and honest. It's like, not everybody can stand out in the summertime in Georgia and yeah. dig oh, a true. big, huge trench and no. build a fort. Yeah. Some I of them would have been translators with first nations. Some okay. of them would have, would have been ferrymen. Um, every now and then they probably would have had to grab a musket and, and fire a few salvos at, at Americans or whoever, but right. most of the time, most of the time in general for blacks, the white society there did not want to see blacks walking around with firearms uh-huh. and um, it gave everybody the wrong impression. And there was um, fear. Yeah. Yeah. Well that's, and it made blacks insubordinate. Yes. Right. So, Potential um, uprisings. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, in the, the American revolution has been termed by several historians as being like the largest um, slave up most successful slave uprising in, in the Americas. So the black pioneers are generally non-combatants, but they play, they fill a lot of different roles and, and um, they're fairly significant in that they're one of the first to, to be raised by the British. And then, so wherever they go uh-huh. enslaved black people, see these black people in uniform and, uh-huh. and, behaving as if they're free and go, Oh, okay. What the British are offering us, it is, must be true. Yeah. There must be something there. It's a better alternative than slavery. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, let's fight yeah. or participate in the war, maybe die, but we'll, we could get out of slavery too. Right. So <laughs> there, there could yeah. be freedom yeah, at the, end of the uh, tunnel. Trying to figure out which way it should go here. Oh, well, maybe I'll try the, uh, yeah. Side and with that's the British. One, you, you touched on a good point is that like a lot, when we think about slavery, uh-huh. Right. It's it's like all of us, I'm sure even, you know, all of us, none of nobody who's who's alive today knows firsthand. And so we've all been sort of encultured with this idea of slavery as being somewhat genteel and not as brutal as it actually was. There's a guy named um, Jerry, the pilot who was in Charleston, South Carolina, and he mused that, you know, if the British come, I'll guide the ships in. So people heard about him saying this and the next thing you know he's thrown in prison and he's he's free he's a free black guy he's one of the richest men in charleston and um henry lawrence who's a patriot hero for americans says you know i'm i'm dead set on that guy's gonna get lynched like he's so bends all the rules and and you know essentially jerry's found guilty of treason mm-hmm. And uh, he's hung and his body's burned in full uh, public view. And and that tends to be, you know, lynching, beheadings. The, the br- treatment that slaves received at the hands of patriots was brutal. And uh, and so it doesn't it's not a big question. Why would blacks want to flee to the British? Yeah, right. Right. An intolerable existence. So you mentioned like a, a few minutes ago, you mentioned the connection with like the Ethiopian regiment. Like what was the connection 
to the black loyalists there. So the Ethiopian regiment was raised by um, Lord Dunmore in 1775. And so it was basically when the Virginia Patriots had gotten, uh, I believe it's like sort of word of um, Lexington and Concord reached the Virginia, the Tidewater, the basically Patriots were up in arms and Lord Dunmore had made a statement in the past that he would, you know, if people didn't toe the line that he would arm the blacks and, and set those on to the Patriots. So there was a lot of uh, mistrust and uncertainty. They didn't and, like that. <laughs> and so wow. the, when, when they chased Lord Dunmore out of Virginia, I mean, he, he jumped on a British flotilla to, flotilla in the Chesapeake Bay and raised an army of blacks, um, which he called the Ethiopian regiment. Now what happened though, was that there was an epidemic of smallpox. And so even though, you know, maybe 2000 blacks attempted to join Lord Dunmore, they are dying off faster than he could raise an army and had that had that not happened, you know, the, the course of the war might have been significantly different. But what it did do is people like Colonel Ty, for instance, they all get combat experience with Lord Dunmore. Uh-huh. And so when they when when Lord Dunmore eventually flees Virginia with the, with the remaining Ethiopian regiment, he's got this core of black loyalists who are combat hardened. And so they end up being the non-commissioned officer corps for like the black pioneers and the black brigade. There's a whole bunch of military paramilitary wow. black units or uh, that sort of form around these lead, this leadership. So, and they, that leadership basically gets transplanted on mass from the United States to Nova Scotia. I have a general sense, but can you elaborate a little bit more on what the day-to-day life for some of these black loyalists would look like? Here's some really, really deep stuff about our people, right? Is that whenever, when we first get introduced to our, our blackness, it's through the, the middle passage and we're all, and by mm-hmm. that time we're already victims, right? right? But at, along the coast of Africa, it was African sailors, right? Who guided Europeans through the surf zone because we were better I've heard small that. Boat, yeah. Small boatmen. Most Europeans couldn't swim. Africans could. So <laughs> there was a balance of power there. And, you know, 20, it's like 20% of white sailors died on the coast of Africa due to tropical diseases. So then you would end up with 20% of the crew being picked up from sailors, black sailors. So they're like the Akan and, um, even Sierra Leone. Um, I'm trying to think of what those guys are, uh, it'll come crew, the crew. Um, so they would, so they're black sailors. So we're, we're, the, we're the enslaved, but we're also the enslavers. We're, you know, we're the victims, we're the perpetrators, but it's, I mean, but that's reality, right? Paradox, Every situation right? has two sides and, yeah, and right. not everybody's on the same side. So what we did is fit into this maritime tradition for the British well, for mm. all the European powers. So the, right. the Caribbean's full of, of people who came as Creole sailors and, and filled a niche of small boatmen 
coastal tavern keepers, uh, dock workers, those sorts of things. So the, the Caribbean and the Southern U S and New York city, they're full of these people who are capable, skilled maritime labor. And that, and that's what it was like in Nova Scotia. It's only after. So again, when we look today and we're like, well, what, you know, why is ha- Captain Highliner white? Well, it's because it, during the mid 19th century, when things were shifting from wind and sail, blacks were excluded from that transition. Tr- blacks weren't allowed to go to trade schools. Um, they were right. essentially if they're on a boat. They were probably like the lowest deck crew or were stewards or cooks or whatever. It sounds like they systematically erased the skill <laughs> or eliminated the skill from being passed on, right? Like it's crazy. It's almost yeah, like they a... systematically did it and then systematically erased it. And Holy. So, so it's, and, and why? Because can't, this is Canada. We didn't do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But we did, but we did. It's so. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but, uh, no, but yeah, it's well, crazy. What do you... Yeah, I have to because I'm like, well, let's, let's fast forward to present day. Like, I laugh all the time about it because it's just <laughs> yeah. so it, it's, it's wild. So yeah, it is. It's it so is blatant. Yeah, it, it's like it just it it you look and it's like oh well these people are all fishermen they're all black boat builders like once you start to look and mm-hmm. you're like how do I not know this like yeah. why don't I know that my people were boat builders mm-hmm. and, and sailors and, mm-hmm. yeah <clears throat> so it's to take it back to the black loyalists. So places like New York City, uh, Wilmington. Wilmington was like a majority black city full of black sailors. Right. The sea shanty is a black invention. It's an African tradition that essentially blacks would sing to keep themselves in time. And and the British said, hey, you know what? We can get those sails up faster if we sing these songs like the blacks do. Oh, my God. So it's... Sorry. Jeez. Um, South Carolina, the major pilots. So they're pilots that end up on McNutt's Island in, in, um, in Shelburne. They're one of the first people to arrive in Shelburne Harbor to act as ships pilots into the Harbor. So we have a very close tie to the maritime tradition. And so when this is sort of where we tackle this, this victim narrative, right? People Mm -hmm. look at Birchtown and they go, Oh, the blacks were stuck out in Birchtown. Well, Stephen, there's when Stephen Bluke went to Birchtown, he was like, I like it here. He likely was looking out, turning around, not looking at the land because the land's not farmland. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. It's not. But yeah. he's he's looking out at the water and going, I can see right out the harbor from here, so I can get in a. Uh, <laughs> we have a. We can boat ourselves over. So we're he was a surveyor. He was a war. surveyor, and he surveyed this land and said, basically, we can move product through here, whatever it needs to be. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm gonna be honest. That's yeah. what he said. He just looked. He, it's like, oh wait. I can move whatever I want through here. Exactly. I, I can do, I can, wow. I can be, so I can be close enough. I'm close enough by boat. I can go over to Shelburne and I can work on the docks. I can, I can be a sailor. I can do all of these things that I used to do in the U S and I'm far enough away from Shelburne. I'm not going to have a bunch of white people up in my business every day, all the time. I'm far enough away there's a river between there's a couple of rivers between me and Shelburne and we can, you know, we've got enough soldiers here that we're safe. We're safe from mobs and 
coercion and we're close enough yet far enough away. It's, it's really interesting because it speaks to the resourcefulness that we've, you know, discussed discussed and also like it's out of necessity. We're able to get these skills under these. Let's remember these situations were very stressful. We've talked about a lot of influential people. You, uh, you know, you hit on one of them right there, Stephen Bluke or Bluck, as we've been calling him. Uh, we also looked at, you know, David George. Uh, what is Stephen's story? So he's. You guys may have done a lot more research into him as than I have. I've looked at a bit of him, and um, my interest in him picks up in I'm going to say it's the late 1770s uh, maybe 1780 so we I spoke about Colonel Ty uh-huh. so Colonel Ty gets shot in the hand and dies of lockjaw and then Stephen Bluke takes over and so he's leading he's a commander of the Black Pioneers but he's also leading the Black Brigade uh-huh. but uh, whatever reason I mean you it doesn't seem to have been permanent and so the Black pioneers end up in the valley and in new new brunswick and um the black brigade ends up in shelburne and Mm -hmm. black brigade usually doesn't get much credit actually i mean it's almost like somebody erased them from the historical narrative that's weird they're they're the armed militants in uh in new jersey that i mean they're they're kicking ass and taking names right so (laughs) Um, and it's odd that we don't think of ourselves that way, but that's that's who they were. And there's plenty of stories about them doing that. So anyway, Stephen ends up in, he comes, He's I think he's on the May fleet in 1783. He ends up in Birchtown. So he's there and he's he has, he does have a voice. I mean, he, he had connections to the upper echelons of, of white loyalist society because if you wanted to get something built, you're going to go see Stephen Blue can and get his pioneers to to build your stuff because they had experience doing this. Yeah, yeah. Or you could go down the street and get a shoemaker and a tailor and a and you know a couple of print makers to come build your house for you. But I don't think you you're probably going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um. And so uh, one of the things that pops up that he he sort of shows up in the sources is when they try to coerce all of blacks free or enslaved or bonded to build the road to Annapolis Royal called Annapolis road. So that still exists in Shelburne, by the way. Hmm. And you can, if you're ever around, but basically he's, he sends a petition to governor prior to say like, you know, why are we being singled out to build roads? You know, so they didn't want to build them. Well, they, they didn't want to be coerced to do it. Hmm. Right. They wanted to be paid well. And Uh Uh as you would, you're, you're free. Yes. You probably have a few resentments about slavery by this time. One or two. And uh, so he's he he does pop out. He's he has communication with um with some of the white power brokers in government, and so he ends up being the de facto mayor of of Birchtown, really. And early on, it is the military guys who are who are higher prominence uh-huh. in the settlement. But later on, when you look at sort of the the exodus to Sierra Leone, it's more the religious leaders that have taken that role on at that time. But uh, he's he's also he can read, right? He can read and write, and he's he's fairly well to do. He's a mulatto as well, so 
he's you know he has he has that exposure to to white people right that uh that a lot of blacks wouldn't have had he so he'd have been you know relatively accustomed and, and been able to pass in white society as someone you could talk to some of these people that's the other thing is like one thing that drives me crazy when you look at portrayals of black loyalists during the war and in movies and, and even like book of negroes and and those things that the black people talk like white people right yeah. they sound uh-huh. like me uh-huh. and <laughs> and it's like those people were at like they were two steps away from being african so yeah. they right, they spoke english maybe as a second language uh-huh. or they spoke some creole most of them would have spoken not proper english and so having the ability to communicate with mm. white people was a big benefit right, right? so stephen bluke capitalized on that he was a teacher but he was probably a pain to some of the the white loyalists who didn't want any any strength and leadership in the black community. Right. And so he was I'm not sure who leveled the accusation accusations against him, but he was accused of embezzlement and subsequently disappeared. That was one of her questions. Yeah, we're yeah. like, what happened to this guy? Like all of a sudden, like there's just <laughs> there's Steven, yeah, and like, then there's you, no you look Steven. And it's like he just <laughs> kind of vanished. Yeah. Oh. Where, where'd you go? <laughs> Here's his bloody clothes. It must have been a wild animal attack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so then come to find out when they go into through his house and pilfer his belongings or whatever they're doing they find the money that he was accused of embezzlement and this is the thing with him it's like it was a common thing within loyalist the early loyalist arrivals to accuse other people of being corrupt right and so that was how you it's like that guy's got all the power i want that power i'm going to accuse him of being corrupt and then right. I'm going to approach somebody in London who has I, power. My that's similar to that, like, uh, what is it, cancel culture? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that whole thing. So, I mean, it's not a new concept. No, it was going, it's not, on, no. It was, it was going, going on, on back in 1783. And, and looking at this, it's really how white loyalist descendants want to craft the, the loyalist legacy. They don't right. want to remember it as being a dysfunctional dystopia in 1783, 1784. They want it to be like, oh, look at our ancestors. We're all glamorous and, and well off. And, and that's just not the case. It was chaos. So let's uh, fast forward a little bit here and, and talk about this race riot, 1784. And we talked about this on our initial call. Um, there was a name that kept popping up, which was David George. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know little bit about his life but also his role in the church and i think we should maybe talk a little bit about how the riot start started centered around david george specifically and uh feel free to correct me if i'm yeah inaccurate like, did it that's it start did it? around david george it did okay it did david george should have a giant memorial of himself in downtown shelburne like the fact that's pure and simple racism that David George has essentially been forgotten in history. Mm-hmm. And so David George was the founder or co-founder of the first Baptist church. So it'd be Silver Bluff Baptist Church in South Carolina. Uh, he went on to start the first Baptist church in Sierra Leone. And in the meantime, he started the first Baptist church in British North America or Canada. He was born in Virginia. 
his master was incredibly cruel, um, essentially beat his, his mother to death in front of him when he was, oh. was a kid. Um, David George, I think after like a, a beating by him, he fled. So right. he fled from Virginia and, and then ends up being captured by uh, First Nation Creek, I think Creek Indians, or First Nation in South Carolina or Georgia. And then, so he's held there for a while. And then his old master catches up with him and eventually he ends up in Silver Bluff and he's, he's, uh, he's been re-enslaved, but uh, on the Gulfin plantation. And so he had, he's, you know, he's pretty, he's a pretty wild guy. But then he has this religious awakening. And so he he starts with this guy named George Leal. And they start a church together. Then when the, the war breaks out, a lot of them flee from the interior out to Augusta. Or no, sorry, Savannah. Savannah. They, Savannah, in Georgia. Okay. Augusta, and they flee to Savannah where they they serve the British. And, and, and David George has a, a diary. And I encourage anybody to read it. It's not very long and you can see what this hmm. guy's, what he did in his life. So he's serving the British in Savannah. And then when the British evacuate, he evacuates with them, ends up in Nova Scotia. He ends up in Shelburne and he ends up with a lot, a waterfront lot. And I don't think it's very big, but he has a, his house and he has a, he builds a church and he's baptizing people in the river down below his his uh, house and he's he tra he's traveling around baptizing people and so one thing to point out here so it makes sense is that it's we're at a time when uh, when the church is really in a state of flux it's in the the great awakening and so people are really like not quite sure how their souls are going to be saved and so i mean we you know we all know the the place that religion has in, in black society that's right yep yep so it's so he's he's there to offer and, and it's a very african so Methodism and and the Baptist religion rely heavily on African spiritual concepts. So the immersion in the in Baptist beliefs that is also it's it symbolizes an African some African religions is it submersion water is marks rebirth. So it makes sense that the he's a proponent of of baptism and so he's you know born again christian sort of approach to religion but that doesn't sit very well with other christian denominations especially the the congregationalists and the calvinists and so the shelburne race riot is always sort of painted as or i even said it myself it's painted as a race riot but it, it's just as much a religious right riot as well and that's where <laughs> when you look at david george's place in that yeah he's going around and he's baptizing people and preaching and and when the trouble starts in shelburne it's because he's baptizing this family from um, jones harbor it's the holmes family and so the homes that live in shelburne go down to this baptism and prevent him from baptizing these people now some historians always go to oh well they didn't want him a black man baptizing these two white people when in reality that there was already this huge rift in the church right in Nova Scotia and it's just as likely that they just didn't want them to become Baptists because Baptists were being persecuted in the 13 colonies and in Nova Scotia okay we see religious uh you know riots all the time I think even still today yeah yeah globally like it's still a thing yeah, it, it's in that and it very much was 
that way, right? I mean, they were describing each other as, you know, people who believed other things to be agents of the devil, right? So, you know, it's not just a mild dislike of of David George's religion. They probably thought, like, this man is spreading evil and we're going to suffer because of these these bad beliefs that some of us have. Right. So, and that sort of starts then. So the mob basically start, that time he sort of gets away with it, but that really initiates the animosity mm. towards David George and anyone associated with David George in church. And so for like a, for a month or so, maybe a couple months, they're just constantly, he himself says like he can't, he's under so much persecution that he can hardly get a chance to preach. Right. And then the mob comes and tears down his house and, and he has squatters on his land, Ooh. tears those down, chases them all out of town to Birchtown. He comes back and then they come back and chase him. And that's really like the big part of the riot is then. And they, you know, they basically say, if you stick around here, we're going to, we're going to kill you. Mm. So off he goes back to Birchtown again. They wouldn't go into Birchtown? Like, I thought there was, like, a proponent that went into Birchtown to, you know, cause havoc. I don't tend to agree with that. Because later on, even in John Clarkson's mission to America, he talks about blacks who flee to Birchtown to get away from white people. Right. So, and these, these blacks, some of them would have been heavily armed and, and guerrilla fighters. So, you've yeah. got a bunch of cobblers and cake bakers <laughs> running, like... <laughs> It just doesn't make a lot of sense. No. Yeah, it's something about black people with like heavily armed, right? It's uh, <laughs> yeah, and it inflicts a lot of uh, painful emotions for uh, a certain group of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I I don't see a lot of evidence of Birchtown being raised to the ground. It right, right. Continues to be a, a self-contained community until the early 1790s it's hot, large population and in fact it's the white population that really implodes right so, so graham i know we don't have much time left like we got two, like basically two more questions um so, so um what happened is, so we know that there was a riot but then like there was an eight-year period before the departure to sierra leone what happened in those eight years like did everything was it uh, i guess that unrest did things start to kind of settle? Did some of the blacks think that, hey, well, maybe things are, you know, going to get better here? It's, it was a constant struggle. Basically, the military rations run out, I think, after two years. And so at that time, most of the affluent whites, if they hadn't left already, they take off, right? There's no more right. food. Uh... And so they leave. The infrastructure that's in place to support wealthy white people basically evaporates. There really aren't a lot of white patrons for the blacks either. Like the economy just tanks. Exactly. It makes sense. Yeah. goes down to like a few hundred people. And so. So then they're just left to fend for themselves. They're left to fend for themselves. They're impoverished. The, the climate at that time is horrendous and there's famine mm. and, um, and there's still religious unrest that continues on. And this whole question of slavery just continues to drag on until until um, there is the trial of Mary Postal. And that's in, I'm going to say, 1791, where, so she, and it all ties together because she went through um, St. Augustine, Florida, and probably she indentured herself or, or got herself in a situation that she went, ended up in Nova Scotia 
probably owed somebody somebody money to get her there but then she's treated as a slave her bond person is trying to to basically sell her and her children off and she challenges mary postal challenges this and yeah they're trying to sell i think one of her kids for a bag of potatoes so they called her the potato lady it seems like a fair exchange you know yeah yeah it just (laughs) anyway i mean that's it's just crazy you know um and we like we we've got to as canadians we're talking now about like residential schools we've got to come to grips with this stuff yeah right like because we all know it and anybody who's listened to this they know it now yeah and so it's like when someone talks about the nonsense of that's just like slavery or you know we gave you people everything it's like no enough enough yes heart stop so what happens is mary postal loses her court challenge and that seems to trigger this it's timed with the return so thomas peters on the who's another right uh, that's he was the one of the head black pioneers during all of this stuff he's gone to to london to petition parliament to get actually get land because they were promised their land and were never awarded and in fact they like they settled a place and gotten kicked off of there by the anglican church so thomas peters shows up and he's and this court verdict has just been handed down and it's like we're still slaves right we're still slave in this country we're still treated no better than slaves so this option to go to sierra leone is is present and so that sort of really leads it's just been one catastrophe after another and so that's what leads to this mass migration from nova scotia Graham, I can't, we can't thank you enough. This has been very, very interesting. And, um, you know, I keep going back to this victim narrative and it's helps keep changing our perspective on, on things as well too. And I hope this is the first step in the right direction in terms of talking about our history in a different light. So again, thank you so much for being our first special guest on the Loyalist Connections. Graham, again, like I just echo everything that Sean said. Uh, we look forward to having another conversation with you soon, man. Thank you very much for your time. All right. Great. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Graham. Thank you for listening to the Loyalist Connections podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and gained some new insights. This episode was produced by your hosts, Larice Gabriel Downey, and myself, Sean Smith, of the Loyalist Connections Creative Group. We want to send out a special thanks uh, to our community partners, the Black Cultural Center and the Black Loyalist Heritage Center and Society for their continued support. And shout out our alma mater, St. Mary's University, especially the St. Mary's University Goresbrook Research Institute Partnership for making resources available to us to complete this project. We encourage you to join us as we continue to host these meaningful conversations and uncover information on our communities and other important aspects of our history. In the meantime, don't forget to listen, like, follow, and share the Loyalist Connection podcast on all your favorite platforms. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Loyalist Connection Podcast for updates and behind-the-scenes content. Also, for exclusive content, including access to unedited episodes, Join the Loyalist Connections community on Patreon. And until the next episode, stay stay connected. connected.